0: from Paul's letter to the Colossians, chapter 1, verse 24 through chapter 2, verse 5. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you. your faith in Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, please be seated. Let's pray. Father, preaching is a holy task, and hearing your word preached is a holy duty. I pray, Heavenly Father, that you would anoint each of us with your Spirit, that what we would hear preached is faithful to your word, that it is true, that it is you speaking to us through the text. Father, that you would purify me from thoughts that are inaccurate, phrases that are more confusing than helpful. Father, that you would make my mouth your mouthpiece. I pray, Heavenly Father, that you would help us to forget everything that comes out of my mouth, that is not pure and faithful to your word. Let us hold fast to your truth. And so, Father, I also pray for an opening of our ears and an opening of our hearts, for our flesh resists hearing the word of God because it is hostile to our fleshy ways. But, Father, we pray by your Spirit that you would give us open ears wide-open hearts, that our affections would widen, that we would be more and more in line with Christ and like him in our obedience. So, Father, we pray your spirit to be powerful today, resting in the promise that your word will not return void. We pray all of this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. All right, well, as many of you know, one of the things I like to do or Go to the movies, and uh, there was a couple movies that, that came out, one recently and one uh, quite a while ago, but they're in the same series that made me think about it as a title for the sermon today. Uh, you might have seen um, a couple weeks ago a movie called uh, What Men Want, or there was another movie with Mel Gibson in it called What Women Want. It's not, they're not good movies. I'm not recommending that you go see these movies. But the the, the premise of the movie was that uh, somebody in the opposite sex would be just given the ability to hear the internal monologue of that most frustrating species, the opposite sex, so that a woman would be able to hear exactly what a man is thinking and be able to apparently uh, utilize that information. And of course, uh, men, and I can speak uh, with many years of experience, uh, it would be so great if I could just hear what? What exactly do you want? What women want, right? Well, as I was thinking about that, I was thinking, well, maybe the the title of today's sermon should be um, What Pastors Want. What Pastors Want. I almost put it on the bulletin, but I held back because I was afraid of what what answers might immediately come to your head. What pastors want. Oh, no, it's a stewardship sermon. (laughs) He's... He's going to ask me to give. Uh, oh, no, he's going to launch a building campaign because he, he wants a bigger church or something something like that. What pastors want? That's a, that's a, a great question. What, what do pastors want? In, in the world that we see today, sometimes we would say it looks like pastors want just the same things that the rest of the world want. Uh, I mean, they want money even though they work one day a week. Um, they want, they want cultural influence, they, they, they want to, uh, uh, to have uh, perhaps authority, and all of these different things that uh, we might say pastors want. And I think that that is part of the reason why I want to, I'm excited about this text, because those reveal the wrong impressions that have come to us through the abuse of what the pastor is supposed to be uh, recently and, and, and for generations Those wrong impressions reveal that that what pastors want has been lost in perhaps marketing, uh, perhaps uh, uh, the wrong desires, the wrong motivations for becoming a pastor. And so it is a, a refreshment for me, and I hope a refreshment for you, that we look at this text where Paul is going to answer as the preeminent pastor what pastors are to want what a pastor is to be about. Paul shows the heart of a pastor. His heart can be summarized with this. He wants to make Christ known to Christ's people. That motivates him. That's, that's his desire. That's his pastor's heart. And this follows naturally from last week where we, we saw four ministries of the gospel that help us uh, find it to be enough for whatever we go through in this world. And so after he has established Jesus is enough, and that the gospel message that he preaches is enough to put us in Jesus, he then naturally turns to the question of what ministry do we need to be secured in that gospel. And so this week we are focused on Christ-centered ministry. Paul in this passage is going to give us four attributes of what Christ-centered ministry is and is supposed to be. Do we need this message? I think so. Because in this message, we are going to be given the answers to questions like this. How do we evaluate a church? What is a, a good church? What are we to seek from a church? What are we to expect? From the church. I think this answers a a fundamental question of our mission statement. Our purpose is to help people live in and live out the good news of Jesus Christ. Today's text tells us how a church is to live in and live out that message that Jesus is enough. And so the text that we have today is a a text to cause us to, to wrestle with these questions and to land in biblical answers. It is a a call for us to be calibrated to the kind of ministry that Paul prescribes to the church. That calibration is both for me as your pastor, but also you as part of the congregation, that we are both centered on a church committed to Christ-centered ministry. So as we go through this text, we're going to work through it verse by verse. We're going to lay out and discover these four attributes of Christ-centered ministry. I'm going to give them all to you at the top. If you have a a handout, you can uh, already fill in the blanks and get all the points. But the four attributes of Christ-centered ministry that we're going to see as we go through this text is first, Christ-centered ministry delights in advancing Christ. Second, Christ-centered ministry declares the apostolic gospel. Third, Christ-centered ministry disciples toward Christ-likeness. And fourth, it defends against false teaching. We'll just go through each of these in turn. We're going to look at verses 24 to the middle of verse 25 to see the first attribute of Christ-centered ministry, which is delighting in advancing Christ. At the top of our passage, Paul says, now I rejoice for your sake. I rejoice for your sake. Paul comes to, to turning towards his pastoral role towards this church, and his words are first and foremost joyful. He is rejoicing that he gets to be a pastor of this congregation. In fact, it's, it's interesting. He calls himself a minister, the same word that we have for deacon. He doesn't, he doesn't come to this paragraph dropping titles and dropping you know, robust authority. He doesn't come out with, as your apostle, which would be very much appropriate. But he rejoices in the fact that he has been given a stewardship to minister. And so he is speaking like a pastor. And his, he rejoices for their sake. His joy, Paul's joy, is giving them Christ, that's his joy, that they have Christ, that they know Christ, that they walk with Christ, that they're secure in Christ. That is the joy of Pastor Paul. How great is his joy? How great is his joy? Look at the, at the phrase in fullness, I rejoice in my suffering. For your sake, he rejoices even as he suffers. His joy is not tempered by the fact that the very uh, uh, commission that is given to him has brought him a great deal of suffering. You you read through the book of of 2 Corinthians or the book of Galatians uh, or the book of Acts, and you will find again and again Paul suffering simply for the fact. That he was sold out for Christ. He was beaten. He was imprisoned. He was ridiculed. He was slandered. He was rejected. That is all that that was brought upon him because he preached Christ. And all of that suffering and the suffering that he endured is a mountain of suffering. It is overwhelming to read some of the things that he endured. He was stoned. Yet, he still writes that all of that pales to his joy in Christ. I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. You see, Paul, Pastor Paul, pastors out of this joy that he has in Christ. The words that he writes in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 17, gives us perspective on the joy that he has next to what he perceives as his afflictions and sufferings. He says, for this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. That was the viewpoint that Paul had as he did his ministry. Yes, I am suffering, but the suffering that I endure is light. It's momentary. He has in his mind basically a picture of a classic scale where he puts all the things that he suffers in one side of the scale and all the the joy and glory and honor that he has in Christ. In the other, and it just goes like this. Basically, all of the afflictions are shot up so fast, they catapult off the scale because this, the, 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 the gravity and the weight of what his joy is in Christ makes these afflictions almost unworthy of mention because these are eternal. These are full of glory. They are all his joy. Paul, Paul shows us something in ministry that we maybe only see in athletic training. We have people who are going to go out to a football field in 100 degree Louisiana weather and they are going to make themselves miserable and they are going to sweat until they vomit. And why do they do that? Because they are living for the glory of a winning football team. They they do not count those sufferings as, as, as anything to compare to the win, to the W. Paul says, that's the pastor's heart. Let me suffer. I'm pressing hard into the eternal weight of glory that is more Christ. More than that, he says... He knows that his suffering's not wasted. And he says these very curious words, which should cause us pause. He says he is filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. What? Paul said something is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Haven't we seen week in and week out Jesus is enough? that he fully reconciles, that he fully redeems, that he offers all that we need to be blameless before God. What is Paul now saying when he says that there is something lacking in Christ's afflictions? We must be clear about this, because we know Paul is an exceptional mind inspired by the Holy Spirit. He is not writing a contradiction. He has told us again and again, Jesus is enough for our salvation. So when he is speaking about filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions, what he is talking about is a different context. And what I believe he is talking about, and what what the commentators that I referenced uh, 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 believe, is that these afflictions that he is talking about are the afflictions that come from advancing the gospel. The idea is that, that Christ has brought in a new kingdom and he has commanded his uh, disciples to go and make disciples of all nations. But in that, we are committed to a spiritual war. We are tearing down, we are in a front against all sorts of spiritual enemies. And so wherever the gospel is advancing, uh, the, the, spirit, the, the kingdom of darkness is being threatened. And so wherever the gospel advances is warfare which yields suffering and afflictions. But Paul recognizes that as he takes the gospel forward, he is suffering afflictions that are part of bringing the kingdom of Christ to the rest of the world. And so he sees going out and sharing the gospel and suffering for it as in a way accomplishing the afflictions that are required to make the gospel cover the face of the earth. And so in that sense, He is talking about Christ's afflictions, the afflictions that come with preaching Christ. And he is delighted to take those afflictions because he knows that as he takes those afflictions, he is taking the kingdom of Christ to new hearts and new people. And so he knows that his suffering is not wasted. Perhaps an image that may be relevant to some of you, it's relevant to all of you, but some of you, you'll, you'll see it more relevant. Uh, birth pangs, labor, the whole idea of, 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 of bringing a child into this world. Uh, the scriptures will talk about God's kingdom coming with, with birth pangs, coming with the pain of it being delivered into the world. And it is that pain that Paul is sharing. He recognizes that there are, are these birth pangs that come with the Messiah's kingdom. And so anyone here who has delivered a baby and anyone here who is a brother or a sister recognizes exactly what Paul is saying. Because if you are a brother or a sister, you are recognizing that the birth pangs that were committed to bringing you into this world was the second time those birth pangs were taken upon. And the reason for that is because the joy of bringing a child into the world far outweighs the afflictions of the birth pangs that the mother says, I'll go through it again. And so that is the picture Paul is recognizing that he is sharing in birth pangs, but he has his eyes fixed on the joy of the kingdom completely manifested. And it's the joy of the baby that that motivates us through the birth pangs. It's the joy of the kingdom coming that motivates Paul to whatever he can do to make that kingdom come. And so as we look at this point in summary, we recognize that Christ-centered ministry promotes Christ, not self. Christ-centered ministry promotes Christ, not self. Christ-centered ministry is is inflamed and motivated by the heart that was shared by the apostles. We read in the book of Acts that as they were preaching Christ and causing more and more problems for the Jewish authorities, that they were threatened for preaching the name of Christ, and they were beaten. But we are told in Acts chapter 5, verses 40 and 41... After they had called the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. That is the first attribute of Christ-centered ministry. It delights in advancing Christ. It rejoices in Christ even at personal cost. Second though, it declares the apostolic gospel. It declares the apostolic gospel. Let us look at Colossians verse 25 through the middle of 27. Let me reread them. To make the word of God fully known. The mystery of hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The second attribute of Christ-centered ministry is that it declares the apostolic gospel. What do we mean when we use the word Apostolic. Well, we're speaking, obviously, of the apostles who were commissioned by Christ to preach the message. But more specifically, I believe this text lays out three attributes of the apostolic gospel. First, that there is one source. Second, that there is one message. And third, that it is for all or to all. Let's peel those out a little bit. First of all, the apostolic gospel has one source. We are told in this passage that it is revealed from God. The gospel that saves is a revelation from God. It was given to the apostles to preach. Verse 26 calls this gospel uh, the mystery that had been hidden for uh, uh, generations that word mystery means that it is it is something that God had hidden, that God's God had kept knowledge to Himself, and that is what the gospel was until Christ was crucified and risen. That this gospel message of a gospel that goes to all people was something that only God knew. He had not given that to someone else. It was kept in darkness. This is uh, uh, what is is brought out in in. Uh, Peter's first letter, uh, he speaks of the prophets who were, who were trying to uh, share these glimpses of the gospel and the ministry that they were doing. He says, concerning this salvation, the gospel, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. You see, the, the gospel message was a mystery kept by God and he gave that mystery, he finally revealed that mystery to the apostles to preach. Second, we see that the apostolic gospel is one simple message. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ has come. Christ has saved you. Christ has been risen. And the good news is that if you put your faith in Christ, the Christ that God has given us, Jesus, the Savior, who died and rose again, that he is in you, And that the hope of glory that that is, that is his is sealed to you. The gospel message is that you are now united to Christ. All of your sins have been given to him and canceled. All of his righteousness and all of his inheritance has been bonded to you. So that when God looks at you, he sees his son Christ. And so, because Christ is in you, you possess the hope of glory which is just another way of saying salvation. The riches that he is speaking of that we have in Christ, because Christ is in us, he describes elsewhere in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9, as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. In Christ, you have been given what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined it is you, it is yours because you are in Christ and third, we see that this apostolic gospel not only has one source, it is not only one message, but that it is for all people that is the startling thing that that Paul and the other apostles continued to, to stumble over as this revelation was given to them. It's that the gospel was not just for the Jews. The gospel was for all people. The gospel included Gentiles. It included pig farmers. It included people that seemed so far from God that they could not possibly be part of the gospel. And yet the mystery that is revealed is that Christ died not just for Jews, he died for Gentiles, so that all who come to Christ, who confess in him as Jesus, Lord and Savior, take our, receive the inheritance, receive the glory, receive the fellowship of God. All people, all peoples have access to the gospel, the same gospel that saves a Jew is the gospel that saves a Gentile. And all of us are either Jews or Gentiles. That's, that's the point. So as we are told what the gospel is, it is this great freedom preached to every corner of the world. And it comes with this promise, as told in John chapter 1, 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. You see, the good news of the gospel that has been revealed and preached through the apostles is it doesn't matter where you've come from, who you were, what family you were born into, what you have done, what you have not done. None of that qualifies you and none of that disqualifies you. The gospel is for all peoples. And if you receive Christ as Lord and Savior, you are a child of God. That is the apostolic gospel. Something else that we need to recognize when he talks about declaring the apostolic gospel is that when when he's talking about this gospel, he wants us to recognize there's no secret knowledge about this gospel. Look at verse 26. The mystery is now revealed. There is nothing hidden. There is no secret knowledge. There is nothing extra for you to figure out. The gospel has been revealed. That is so important. When he says it is now revealed, he is telling us that what you need to know to be saved has been given to you in Scripture. You can find what you need to know in Scripture. You don't need something else. The church is not a place where you come into it and then we give you a little bit more and a little bit more about what it means to be saved. No, we put everything out there at the very beginning. It's all disclosed. The gospel message is open and known. This is important for us. Paul wants us to recognize that the entire gospel has been revealed, and Scripture contains all that we need to be saved. Scripture contains all that we need to be saved. Why can I say that? Because the gospel is Christ. Look at verse 28. It's Him we proclaim. That's the gospel. Christ is the gospel. Him we proclaim. Look at verse 25. Christ is the word of God fully known. Fully known. And then look at chapter 2 verse 3. In Christ this is true. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in him. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Christ. So if we proclaim Him, we proclaim all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And yet there are many today who say, but I need a little bit more. I need some additional treasures of knowledge and wisdom. I need to find other sources. But if we take the gospel at heart and the gospel at face value, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge have been given to us in Christ. And as long as we have proclaimed Christ, we have proclaimed all you need. I mean, seriously, after you receive all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, what else do you want? What else do you need? We see then when, when we talk about Christ-centered ministry declaring the apostolate gospel, we are also saying this simple fact. Christ-centered ministry is committed to Scripture alone. Christ-centered ministry is, is committed to Scripture alone. Why? Because it's committed to Christ alone. There's no new revelation. There are no new laws. There are no additional traditions that need to be added to the Savior. Jesus is enough. He has accomplished our reconciliation. And so nothing needs to be added to salvation because nothing needs to be added to Christ. And since the Scriptures fully disclose Christ, nothing needs to be added to the Scriptures. Scripture fully reveals Christ. And Christ fully saves. Amen? This is good news. It gives us security because of Scripture alone as the source of Christ alone. We know this. The gospel's not going to change. The terms of salvation aren't going to move on you. The cheese is where God said it is in Christ. That's the full good news. We don't worry about what some prophet or what some sage is going to say about how to please God because we have everything that we need to know in the scriptures. And that is a great comfort. That is great security. Christ alone declared by scripture alone is building your house on the rock. It will withstand the storm. And so Christ-centered ministry preaches Scripture alone. But third, we move to seeing the third attribute, Christ-centered ministry disciples toward Christ-likeness. Look at verse 28. This is is the purpose that Paul has. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. That we might present everyone mature in Christ. This idea of of maturity in Christ, that's that's Paul's purpose for picking up the pen, for writing to the Colossians. He wants them to be mature in Christ. His purpose is to present them before Christ, complete, complete, this growing in maturity is a, is a process that we, that we call sanctification. Sanctification is, 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 is increasingly conforming yourself to Christ. And the end of sanctification is another fancy term called glorification. Glorification means that we have been completely made new, that we have our resurrection bodies and that we have our uh, ourselves completely... Um, conformed to the image of Christ. And that is the process that the gospel takes us on, sanctification to glorification. Now, before we get any further, we have to step back and explain the relationship between another big term, justification and sanctification. The message of justification is that by faith alone in Christ, you are justified, you are declared righteous, before God, immediately. You are, in a legal sense, already just. Sanctification is the process of your life gradually and increasingly conforming to the image of Christ. But we don't confuse the two. We are saved by justification, we are not saved by sanctification. However, true justification is married to sanctification. If you are truly justified, Christ is in you, then you will have the Spirit in you calling you to be sanctified. And so it is, it is like the image of a root and a fruit. The root is where our life comes from. That's justification. If our root is in the soil of justification, we are alive and nothing's going to happen. But if that root is really in the justifying soil of Christ, it has life in it that is going to bear fruit that will be seen, and that is your sanctification. And so it is always a caution to declare, I am justified, but fruitless. If there is no fruit, if there is no sanctification, then perhaps there is question about where the root really is. But anyways, that is what Paul wants us to grasp. If Christ is in you to justify you, he is also in you to sanctify you. And Christ-centered ministry is focused on that finish line, as it says in verse 28, that we may present you mature in Christ. Paul is looking forward to that day where all of the people that he has converted, that he has discipled, will stand before God, and he will be with them, sharing in the joy of their being received by Christ that is the vision that he has and so how how does he how does he pursue this this vision of their of their being presented mature in Christ simply by discipling in the word we are told in colossians 3:16 that Christ likeness comes through Christ's word dwelling in us richly and if we look at verses 28 and and verse 2 uh Colossians 2.2, 2, we also read uh, in addition that their hearts may be encouraged, be knitted together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. We see in verses 28 and verses 2 all, all that we need to experience God the word's transforming power, the, the discipleship of the word. We see in verse 28 that it warns and it teaches The word of God, when it dwells in you richly, warns you, meaning that you will experience the call to repentance when you are living unfaithfully. It teaches you, meaning that it renews your mind as you you live in it, as you press it into your life. It makes you more and more aware of the mind of Christ. We see that it encourages you. That is, it gives you strength. Just like Joshua at the, at the conquest of the, of the promised land, God told him, be strong and courageous for I am with you. The scriptures is God with us. And as we live in it, it makes us strong and courageous. It encourages us. Fourth, we see that the, the scriptures draw us together. It knits us together in love. You can't love the word of God and want to live out the word of God without loving God's people and wanting to live out the word of God with each other. That is something that happens when the word of God dwells in you richly. You love one another. Fifth, we see that that it assures us, that it gives us the full assurance of understanding. That understanding implies that, that the word helps assure us as that word is applied in our life. And sixth, We are told that that word deepens us. That word is like roots that go down and hold us, and hold us firm. I think of the the image in Psalm 1 describing uh, the, the, the righteous person who meditates on the law of God day and night, that he is like a tree where his roots go down into the rich, nourishing waters so that he can bear fruit in season and out of season. That is what happens is the, the word dwells in us richly as we give ourselves to the transforming power of the word, or as I would put it another way, as we allow the word to disciple us. Christ-likeness then is the, is the product of that word dwelling in you richly. And it's that word that we, that we preach, that we teach, that we try to, to exhort you to take up and live in. And it yields what we call simply Christ-likeness. It makes uh, us more and more bearing of the image of Christ. H- how do you know if, if discipleship is, is progressing in your life, when well, you're growing in Christ-likeness? And here's a, here's a question: Is your life becoming more and more inexplicable? Apart from your faith in Christ. Can you make sense of your life, your days, your passions, your desires, what you do, who you hang out with? Can you make sense of that without mentioning Christ? As you grow in Christ-likeness, the person people see should become more and more unfamiliar to the person that you once were. Because you are becoming more and more conformed to the image of the Son. Paul is an example of this. What does he call himself? He calls himself a prisoner of Christ Jesus. He recognizes even his imprisonments in the lens of his faith, in the lens of his discipleship of becoming like Christ. Are you growing in inexplicability apart from Christ? Have you allowed the word to dwell in you richly? Those are the same question. Third, or fourth, fourth. The fourth attribute of Christ-centered ministry, we've seen that it delights in advancing Christ, it declares the apostolic gospel, it disciples towards Christ's likeness Third, it defends against false teaching. Paul then turns in verse 4 to say, to ask this question, or not to ask a question, but to state, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. That no one may delude you with plausible arguments. Paul, as a pastor, recognizes that preaching the gospel is is both affirming what is true and denying what is false. And he recognizes that believers can be deluded by plausible arguments, things that sound good, sound right. They can persuade and convince us We are told in the Scriptures that there are wolves who seek to get into the flock, who wear sheep's clothing. And so Christ-centered ministry speaks against false teaching, exposes wolves when they appear. When we talk about Jesus is enough, we we are affirming that Jesus is enough, and we are also denying that anything that you add to Jesus, whether it be traditions, whether it be works, whether it be the pursuit of prosperity is necessary or is part of the gospel. And so Christ-centered ministry defends against false teaching by teaching discernment against false teaching. I believe if we go backwards through this text. There are five discernment questions that you can use to determine whether you're listening to false teaching or Christ-centered teaching. First... Who is at the center of their ministry? Christ or themselves? Second, what is the focus of their teaching? The gospel or something else? Third, what is the source for their teaching? Scripture alone or visions? Human reason? Traditions? Or private words from God? Fourth, is the goal of their ministry that you become more like Christ by calling you to repentance and deeper obedience? Five, do they submit their teaching to scriptural correction or do they believe they are above criticism? Those are five questions that Paul has given us in this passage to discern a Christ-centered minister from a minister who is not centered on Christ. So as we conclude, Christ-centered ministry is this, delighting and advancing Christ, declaring the apostolic gospel, discipling toward Christ-likeness, and defending against false teaching. That is the the church that God wants us to have. That is the the pastor that Paul calls us to be. That is, by God's grace, what I seek to be. But if I have said something today that reveals a falsehood, please let me know so I can continue to reform towards the gospel-centeredness that I need to have. Christ centered ministry calls us to Christ centered lives. That's why it's so important. It is there to, to teach us to cling to Jesus because Jesus is enough. So, what? What do I want to leave you with? We all need constant recentering. We constantly need to make sure that we are centered in Christ and not in something else. Have I said something to you today that is the Spirit speaking to you? A word of repentance. Please heed it. And finally, being in a Christ centered church means nothing until you have made yourself Christ centered. So the question for you is have you accepted the gospel? Have you received the news Jesus is enough? As John tells us again in his gospel. All who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Have you received this gospel? Have you become Christ-centered? Amen.